We take up our Bibles at the time and turn to three of the Gospels, three of the records of the one Gospel, first at Mark and then at Luke and then Matthew 16. That'll be our text for this evening. These are parallel passages, one word of God from three different points of view, which are divine points of view through human beings, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First Mark 8, then Luke 9, then Matthew 16. Keep that together. Mark chapter 8, first of all, and verses 31 through 39. After there it's recorded that Peter has confessed Jesus is the Christ. Jesus warns them that they should tell no one about him. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. That's as far as we'll read there uh, in this parallel to our chapter, Matthew 16. But let's turn now to Luke 9 and 21. It's really only one verse there. Luke 9 and 21. There's an abbreviated version of this account of Peter clashing with Jesus. 921 of Luke. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, or verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now to our text, Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Thus far we read this account of what I would call the necessities of Christ. Peter thinks he must not suffer, he ought not suffer, and Jesus says he must. We have, in this passage, been going to heaven, really. We've had to because things of heaven have been revealed there. And there is first that heavenly confession of Peter worked by the Holy Spirit Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? You see, after this, about three years of his ministry, Jesus wants them to be able to articulate clearly just their knowledge of the Savior. And so Simon Peter answers and says, really, for all of them, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And remember Jesus' answer to that? He said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, it's from heaven. 
And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed um, in heaven. And so these are heavenly things, and, and Jesus himself in our text is now revealing a very heavenly thing, beautifully heavenly, and that's the necessity of these things. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciple that he must, that's the necessity, he must go to Jerusalem. And also with that uh, must, he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and he must be killed, and he must be raised the third day. So that's heaven, the heavenly confession of Peter, an heavenly explanation of Jesus of that confession, and a further articulation and demonstration of just who he is and what is required of him and what God will cause to come to pass, his sufferings and his resurrection. So there's heaven, and we're so glad to be there and go there, aren't we, beloved? These are things that we're given to see, things that that flesh and blood cannot reveal to us, but God must, and he does in this wonderful word. But alas, there's a thing of hell here. So quickly does Peter change from one who confesses an outstanding confession of the truth as it is in Jesus to one who is an agent of Satan. That's the idea here. Peter is astonished that Jesus would dare to teach the disciples that he must suffer and and die and so on. And he says to Jesus, taking him aside and condescending to know more than the Savior, even to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus, we know, calls him Satan. It's amazing, this juxtaposition of heaven and earth this meeting even in one person of things from heaven and things of earth. What's happened to Peter? And so we have to deal with this this part, this realism of the Bible, of a weak disciple here, and of the steadfast Jesus, who is bearing the reproach and receiving the temptation from the devil and, and thwarting it when he asserts that he must suffer regardless of what men shall say. So... Let's consider very soberly here tonight, but also with application to our living, uh, the necessities of the Christ. And first of all, how Jesus lays that out, and then we'll deal with the temptation uh, of Peter, the rebuke of Peter, and Jesus' rebuke of Jesus, or uh, excuse me, of Peter. And then finally, the calling that's implied here, and which really is what Jesus is getting about when he begins 24 and says, we have to take up the cross and so on. Here is the announcement of the gospel, the sufferings, and the glory of Jesus. That's what he's announcing here. And Peter should have been elated. He should have been as we, who know on the other side of Pentecost and of the full revelation of these things, the wonderful worth of the death of the Son of God and the wonderful victory that he has that seals the worth of the death of the Son of God, his resurrection. 
I say Peter and the others should have known that because Jesus had been alluding to that. It's in the Old Testament, after all, as well, that Jesus must suffer and that Jesus must rise again. You think of when Jesus, in this very book of Matthew, said that the Son of Man has to die and he'll be in the ground three days, and he said this will be just like the prophet Jonah, who was taken into the belly of the whale for three days and then spat up on the ground. Well, it's like the death and resurrection of myself, Jesus alluded to that, rather cryptically. You think of the fact that when he was conferring to them about the temple, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And he was alluding to his body and the disciples knew that somehow. They knew something of the demise of the Savior and of the demise of the Savior, which would be this death of the Son of God and the symbol of it, the temple, which is the symbol of God with us. God with us will die. But here... As never before in the some three years of his ministry thus far, Jesus articulates, spells out clearly what he's all about and what needs be to happen now and from now on as he goes from Galilee more to Judea and then to Jerusalem to give himself up to die. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples, to teach them, that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes. Now those are the Sanhedrin, the representatives of the rulers of of Israel who were in Jerusalem, the 70 so-called, who were the appointed elders and leaders including the priests of the people of God, Israel. And Jesus must suffer from them and be killed and then be raised the third day. Now, the significant word here for our purposes on which we would focus is that must of Jesus. For Peter thinks he must not. It can't be. It's beneath you, Jesus. It's not what we know of the word of God. But Jesus says something different, something that had not been expected in the thinking of Peter or of the disciples. Let's not just blame Peter. He's the leader in truth, and he's the leader in the lie here, as we see. And so he must. That's the point. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Some here would say, well, this is just one of those things that it had to be because of the circumstances and because it just worked out this way that the people were reacting. And so that's going to be now the plan of God in reaction to the reaction of the people. He's going to have to die. We know better. We know better as those who know our Bible that the must of Jesus here is his saying, speaking first of all of the fact that this is the counsel of God. This is the eternal will of God. Jesus has alluded to this uh, repeatedly in his ministry. It's revealed in the New Testament about the determinate will and good pleasure of God. And so Jesus thanks the Father in Matthew chapter 11 
that it is his good pleasure, his eternal will, to reveal things to babes and to hide them from the wise and the prudent. Here we have a reference once again to the counsel of God, way back of all of these other musts. That is what Jesus is referring to. This is why he must go to the cross. It's in the eternal plan of God. Something very significant, more significant than the reality of what happens even, if we can say that, no, on a par with it or as the source of it. Let's put it that way. The source of the reality of crosses and losses, successes, and birds and butterflies and bumblebees, the source is the will of God. All things find their beginning, their shaping, and their end in the will of God. And this is amazing, but this is how the Bible presents our God. He's in the heavens, Psalm 115, verse 3, and he does according to his good pleasure in all of the earth, according to Daniel. Even among the angels, even among what we would call wicked men and who are wicked men, God is doing his will. He is the God who is the the great God, after all, and who is sovereign over everything. Some people like to say, well, the devil does his thing. Those are all bad things. God does his things, and they don't mix, and God doesn't have anything to do with Satan's workings. But the Bible tells us otherwise. Though God is not evil, of course, he's not the author of evil, Yet he's over the devil. You think of the alternative. If the devil was in charge of evil and God of good, there'd be no comfort. And the evil might win if God was not in control somehow of the devil. But God is in control of the devil. And he even moves Satan, though Satan is responsible, to do his bidding. Satan is a lousy servant. That's what he is. But he's a servant. And so even with regard to the cross, there are two passages that point this out very clearly in Acts 2, 23, Acts 4, 28. I know these things, and and I don't spout them off here, but I tell you because I have often referred to these passages, think up the greatest evil, men slaying Jesus, and the greatest good, God determining this crucifixion of Jesus for our salvation. You think of it. The cross of Calvary, which in the book of Acts, it's said to be the determinate will and counsel of God. Acts 2.23, Acts 4.28, you can look it up. There is this must. There is this eternal, powerful will of God, so much divine that some have said that the will of God is none, none the less than God willing. It's that divine. You see, the will of God is not detached from God. And if God is great, great is his will. And if God is king, so his will is a kingly will. Or he's simply not God. It'd be like to say if we thought that the cross wasn't in the will of God, well, then that maybe other things weren't in the will of God, but we know it is. And Jesus alludes to this here in referring to this must, this 
what we would call determinism, but really isn't that. Some people like to say it can't be. You can't be saying here, Jesus would not be saying here, that behind his suffering even, and his death, his demise, is God's will, because that's too machine-like. And besides, it's not good of God to do this. Those are the two things that people object against. If this makes God a a machine-like God, this determinism, nobody is moving except the divine mover move them, and they have no other choice in the matter, and so on. And this makes God bad, after all, because when he moves and shakes and people have, no one can resist his will, then God must be evil because evil is happening. Well, we know this. And though we can't explain all these things, we just know this. God is in control. You say that, beloved? This is what we believe here. And it's a very important concept, truth, doctrine. It is. Because it influences our life to worship this God, no matter what. And to yield to his will and to say, have your own way, it's good. Your ways are higher than ours. And we know what's happening because the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, all things including this. Jesus is the great theologian come to reveal God, and in this must, one word, he's telling us something that is so inscrutable, so above, so high, so theological, so divine, that we must, we must worship God. But to the answer that this is a mere determinism of some Calvinist gone awry and become a hyper-Calvinist, we simply say it's revealed in the Bible, and who are we to reply against God? Even this, the suffering at the wicked hands of men and of devils, is God presiding over this suffering and over the wickedness. Not wicked, perfectly good, absolutely God. But then, of course, there's these other things that are necessary and that make his suffering necessary, perhaps from a different point of view. Yes, indeed. Maybe we would call it an ethical must and and necessity, like sin. Why does Jesus have to go to the cross? Well, sin, that's why. Sin in theory? No, your sin, beloved, and mine. That's why Jesus must go to the cross. See, Jesus is announcing here things theological and things anthropological, that is, of man, the truth of man. He must go because we are sinners, and he is bearing the sin of his people and then bearing the wrath of God for sin. That's why. And the holiness of God is another reason why there must be the cross of Calvary, because God isn't the great sin sweeping under the rug God. He's the great Savior God who will save himself, that is, save himself from ridicule by dealing with sin in a divine way. And he deals with sin exactly as a holy and just God 
you would expect would. He has his justice satisfied. He won't let people off the hook. There's no, there's no uh, relief for good behavior because there's no good behavior. God will be God. The soul that sins, it will die. And you say, well, that's overkill, God. The divine overkill. Killing man for just taking of the forbidden fruit. Oh, beloved. God is infinitely God. And when one, when one sins against the Most High God, one little sin is worthy of eternal hell. And our God who's so holy that angels cover their faces before him is also so holy that he will not behold iniquity except to punish it. And that's why the Savior must go to the cross to satisfy the justice of God in obeying God in our place and then in being punished in our place. God not averting justice, but satisfying its demands and then showing himself merciful at the same time. That's why Jesus must go to the cross. Do you know? Peter, don't you know? Peter's, don't you know, all of you, Christ-denying Peter's and Christ-not-believing Thomas's, don't you know? But there's mercy revealed, and that's why Jesus will go to the cross. The Son of Man must go because he will show his love for the people and he will show the love of the Father for the people of his good pleasure. There's a great big three-word sermon on the top of Calvary. God loves sinners. And that's why he must go to the cross to show, to commend to all the greatest example of love, the greatest act of love, the great power of love to forgive sins, to take it all away. That's the gospel. Why must Jesus go to the cross? To reveal God, his counsel, the sin of man, the holiness and mercy of God met together without any contradiction. And we could say a lot of other things about this must, but how about this? Jesus, knowing the scriptures, says the Son of Man must go to the cross because the Bible says so. The Bible says that the Messiah will be suffering and then he will rise after that. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy, reaches into the, the distant future 400 years or so before Jesus comes and dies and rises again. And he, he says that the Lord there has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, and there will be this rising of the sun so that he will see the success of his work and his death. His suffering will not be in vain. And there is the word of Psalm 16, that God will not let his Holy One see corruption, a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus and so many other passages too. In all of the Old Testament typology, 
All the suffering of the bulls and the goats and their blood being shed was all a picture of Jesus having to suffer that the sins of the people might be atoned for. Then there's this one passage, of course, which says it all. It says what all the Old Testament was saying. I'm referring to 1 Peter 1 in verse 10 or 11. That there's the spirit of Christ that was in the prophets. Remember that? Testifying beforehand, before Jesus came, of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. There it is. Jesus has just spoken of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, that must follow. Now, it's striking here, all of these musts. But there's one thing that seemed to be on Peter's mind, and that was this thing of the suffering. It's almost as if he missed the prophecy here that Jesus would be raised the third day. Did you see that? Did you miss that? Maybe I've missed that in emphasizing the necessity of Jesus' suffering. But linked together with the suffering is that he must rise again. There is this divine necessity, this prophetic necessity, this sin necessity that he die. But note here, he makes it not just a parenthesis, but a part of the must of the gospel that Jesus must, after he's killed, be raised the third day. And again, I say it's as if Peter missed it. He stopped, just like some people can do. Long about the third point of a sermon. Ah, he's getting long. Watch it, beloved. You think I'm getting long? Be careful. Sometimes as ministers, we take a while to get warmed up, and we're going to bring something that you need to hear the third point. So bear with us. It's the beauty of a congregation. You know me, I know you. We bear with one another. But we're glad for one another, too, and for the ministry. And the ministry, not only of the death, but of the glory of Jesus, he won our Savior one, and that's what resurrection means. God approved his sacrifice. It was a sweet smell in his nostrils, as it were, as the Bible describes the, the offerings and the incense that would rise into the nostrils of God. He was pleased with that, also with the perfect sacrifice of his son. And that means the Son of God lays down his life, he rises again, and he must do this, and he did do this, and that's good news. Well, you believe that, beloved? There was one who didn't. The first pope maybe. Peter Jesus has to learn something, Peter says here. This is amazing, talking about this rebuff of Peter. Jesus announces the gospel, <laughs> and Peter then takes him aside. He just can't believe it. And it's almost as if he's saying, Lord, um, you're missing it here. aside, and that's, that's how the Bible says it here, he takes him aside, he's respecting him, he began to rebuke him, maybe in private, maybe off to the side, 
so that the apostles, the rest of them, are not hearing this. And he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, just need to assess here what's going on. And I'm thinking that Peter here has, has fallen greatly because he's been a little bit too cocky. He's, he's taken it to heart that um, he's blessed of, of, of God for this confession that he's made. But as all of us do, we, we do one good thing and we're commended of the Lord and then we take it to heart as if that's, that's just who we are. We're so great. And really, it's not from heaven, but... It's because heaven recognized just how great I am inherently and so on. We can have all these reasons for thinking we deserve a crown and a commendation from heaven itself. And so there's this pride that comes before what I would consider, and I hope you would agree, is a great fall of Peter. Before he denies Jesus later on, after Jesus is going to the trial, it's here he denies the gospel of Jesus Peter's been to heaven to make this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But right now, he's made up Jesus. He has a Jesus in mind and a Christ in mind, which is not according to the mind and the will of God. And again, not to his credit, to his discredit, but still to mitigates somewhat the guilt. Peter is just one of those who's been following the blind leaders of Israel. They're all ready to kill Jesus. That's bad enough. But Peter's all ready to subvert Jesus from the real mission of saving sinners. And it's no untruth, no exaggeration, therefore, when Jesus takes him and also rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. Now, this is powerful. But it's not an exaggeration. I don't know how Satan was here. Satan was certainly in the confession of Peter, tempting Jesus, just like he did in the wilderness. Remember when he tried to get Jesus to not go to the cross, just turn these stones into bread, jump from the temple, bow to me. Show your allegiance to me, Jesus, and it will be easy for you. That's Peter right here. It's Peter right here. We don't know again how, how Satan is here, if he's literally here, maybe off to the side, or maybe somehow so having taken over Peter for a while. I don't believe that Satan occupied Peter's heart because Peter's a true believer, and the devil can never occupy the hearts of true believers of God, especially on this side of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes in, makes our hearts a temple. He would never share with the devil the heart of a son or a daughter of God. Remember that. But Satan is here, and especially in what Peter's saying. And Satan is tempting Jesus here. You are an offense to me, a scandalous, Jesus says. A, you're trying to trip me up. 
Jesus identifies rightly the real culprit behind this lying of Peter and this posturing. Get thee behind me, Satan, may mean be done with that. Go away. Or it may simply mean that Jesus is talking to Peter and who's acting satanic and saying, no, you, you, you go behind me now. You follow me and don't try to lead me. That could be, and I believe that is, the primary way to look at this. Jesus is saying, now, I'm the leader, you're the follower, and right after this, he'll speak of following him and taking up our cross. So he may very well be alluding to that here, but what he's saying is, I'm the teacher, you have a lot to learn. Imagine that. Imagine that. Rebuking Jesus. Rebuking Jesus. Wow. Intimating that he doesn't have the wisdom you do, or that what he suggested here is, is preposterous. How can it be? What a sin. You see how forcefully Jesus deals with this, and he has to, because this is the end of the gospel if the rest of the apostles believe that, and if they found the church on that. Basically, what it is is saying that the rock, the confession of Peter, is, is really no more, or it includes a confession with a new interpretation. It's kind of like the new interpretation that new theologians are giving on the gospel. The gospel is, oh, Jesus helps those who help themselves. And Jesus dies that you might be rich, or at least have enough, as the next guy, equality of outcome. Distribute the wealth. Liberate the oppressed by sponsoring revolutions in Nicaragua or whatever. That's not the gospel, beloved. The good news is deliverance from sin, and I pray that you understand that if you're listening here on the Internet too. The gospel is deliverance from sin, and Jesus is that Savior from sin, from its guilt, from its bondage, from its doom and death unto heaven. Peter missed it. Peter was thinking that, well, Jesus is going to be a Messiah like David or maybe Solomon in all of his glory, and he's going to be able to outcompete Caesar, and he's going to be, out to be able to outcompete any other kingdom and set up a kingdom on this earth and, and so be the great triumphant Israel as of old. He had a carnal idea of victory, again, like many even preachers uh, of evangelicalism have today's carnal idea of victory. There'll be a preaching maybe of suffering, but a kind of glory that follows, not only for Jesus, but his church, that is not in harmony with the suffering. A glory of something that can be seen and sold and, and appealing to men. A gospel that sells, oh, beloved, as one had said in my studies, I stumbled across this. A gospel that sells 
is not always a gospel that saves. Remember that. The gospel that sells and is popular, draws a great big crowd, is not necessarily a gospel that saves. In other words, it's not a gospel, not the gospel of the Bible. It's understandable that people today would follow Peter because this is the nature of man. Jesus alludes to that when he says it's not only satanic what Peter's doing here, but it's simply human. (laughs) Note that. You're an offense to me. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus alluding to the fact that Satan has taken over Men, he's the prince of the world, after all. And he's the one who holds in bondage the minds of men. So we think like men, sinful men, myopic, self-centered men. And we think we have our own idea of Jesus. Here's a Jesus that we can, is compatible with what we think Jesus ought to be. And here's a gospel, compatible with the gospel we think there ought to be. And so we'll interpret the scripture accordingly. Oh, it's almost as if Peter is thinking of Jesus here as a politician. And the politician, of course, needs to follow the policy that will lead to his winning the vote, winning over the people. But the politician has just said, and by the way, I must be assassinated. That's the only way we're going to win here. So this sounds a lot like how we would react if our man we thought was going to the White House, he said, I had to be assassinated. We say, well, now that's ridiculous. Well... Imagine these minds of these people, these fishermen, these men, who have, after all, except God graces them, minds of men. We think, as men do, what counts for success among men is all there can be and all there needs to be. There must be a man-like tower that we build Babel, there must be a man-like nation that we build. Fill in your nation. There must be a man like Jesus, and we make him in our image, and we advise him, and we take him aside once in a while, we say, no, your policy, you got to shape it differently here. Just what the devil says to men, and he did in the first, questioning the word of God. Yea, as God said, the devil said to Eve, and he's saying here to Jesus, Jesus, are you really sure? You can't be sure. You who say you're the word of God, how can this be? Hath God really said, are you really In saying this, I can follow you up to now, but in saying this, are you really true? 
to the path of the Heavenly Father. It's how people work, how they think. Prejudiced against truth and the truth especially of the sufferings of Jesus and the glory that needs follow that. Glory, a glorification of God that is connected with suffering. If you don't have the suffering, beloved, you'll have a glory maybe in the church and in the cause of Christendom, but it will be based on, as Luther would say, a theology of glory. There will be a carnality in the mix. Something maybe of heaven, but not focused on this word of suffering, the suffering of Jesus and the glory that follows and the way that it follows to give glory to God, not man, not man. So there's this rebuke, and I dare say Jesus is saying to a lot of us in our imaginary Christianity, been rough on you today, haven't I? Out of a lot of imaginary Christianity, and you're all in a coma. We're all like that. But I wonder if the same Savior would say to us, get thee behind me, Satan. No, don't do that. Do that. Glory in the cross, my final point. What's a people to do to learn from this? Really, this leads to the, the practical but so beyond us exhortations and instruction of verse 24 and following. Jesus is going to turn to his disciples and teach them as only he knows how without the advice of Peter. And say, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will profit it, will find it. For what profit is it to the man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You see what he's doing there? He's setting the path for the disciples who must follow him who may not save his life, but who will lose his life to gain it. We must follow in the paths of Jesus, even though, of course, we can't follow to atone for sins, but we follow as those whose sins are atoned for, don't we? All the way to Golgotha, we must go. That's the idea here. If we are going to be not sons of Satan or tempters, and fallen into temptation as individuals, there must be this personal belief. Number one, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And number two, this is what he looks like. The suffering Savior. The risen Savior. The God with us Savior. His way. His cross. As a church, let us preach this and preach so that we're not a stumbling block, but the gospel is. You see here, Peter, the rock 
or the confession of Peter the Rock becomes a stumbling block. I mean, that never be. We want to be all things to all men and not get in the way of people receiving Christ and growing with us. Folks, if they come in with pink hair, let them come in. Just so long as they're converted. If people come in here and they smell, or they come in here and they do things different than we are, okay, so long as it's not sin, reach out to them and love them. Doesn't matter their their skin color, their nationality, their ethnicity, whether they're Dutch or Italian or German or Polish, whoever you are. Just so that they know Jesus loves sinners. Just so they know that there's no requirements to get into this club. We're a church after all. And all we do here is preach Christ. That's it. And people come and unite themselves first to Christ here, then to the church here, because we love what Christ loves, the saints. We do. You can always tell a church that's left the moorings of the gospel when it starts bickering about this and that. Maybe linked to the, the pulpit and often is. Say, for example, a man started preaching that there's another kind of expression of victory in, in, in America or wherever we are that ought to be the fruit of our preaching. But it's not linked to the cross and the victory of the cross. Say we were to do that, we'd start having different opinions about the sermon, not only, but about the doctrines. That would lead to other opinions and even wranglings, and pretty soon the church is divided. Why? Because we have different ideas of Jesus and different ideas of his cross and his victory. Beloved, we don't preach ideas of Jesus here. We preach the truth of Jesus. We don't preach ideas of victory. We preach the truth of the victory of the gospel, the resurrection from the dead, the truth of heaven, the truth of heavenly blessedness. And as we preach Christ crucified, and we must, that will be a stumbling block to the glory seekers who seek glory without suffering, even the suffering of Jesus. But that will be the unity of the church and the peace of sovereign grace of the wonderful Savior, of the Christ who says, I must suffer, but after three days be raised again. There's one other thing I leave you with. The Savior here speaks of his demise in the passive voice. He says, this Messiah that I am, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer as if he's going to let things happen to him and they're just, he just can't avoid it. And then be killed, again passive, and then be raised the third day. Well, that's one point of view. At other places, however, Jesus says, I'm going into this. I'm marching to the cross. I am willingly laying down my life. And you know what that means? Jesus says, and is saying in that, I love you. I must go because I love you so.
Here's the debt of love that he wants to pay. Now you remember that in all your life. Jesus loves you, and he loves me. And he says, press on. And he says, keep going. I went to the cross for you. Now you come and get behind me, my child, and follow me. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless us who hear right now so we can believe and let it sink in and then flow out, that is, bear fruit. So we bear testimony and our prayer life is a drawing near to God as never before. We overcome sin and we love where we hate it and we take a stand where we once were waffling and we are reconciled where there was unrest. We ask, Lord, that your sinful people may hear this and be glad. The gospel announced of Jesus here is truly wonderful. And it's the wonder of grace. May we go now in your peace and in your grace. Amen.